Good to have you up here. Before we um, open the text today, I have a couple of announcements. One is um, we have a group of people that I'd like to say thank you to and honor. Tomorrow's Veterans Day. If you're a veteran, would you please stand up? Thank you. We are uh, we're deeply grateful for your service. Thank you for sacrificing and service, uh, um, sacrificing for us. Second thing is, uh, Tim, the mic's right there. We just got back from an elder retreat yesterday and uh, had a fantastic time, and we wanted Tim to take some time and share with you. Thanks, Jim. I am so pleased to be here today to give you a summary of uh, an incredible weekend that three pastors, paid pastors, and 15 uh, former, present, and future elders enjoyed together at Snow Mountain Ranch, the YMCA Ranch in Grand County between Tabernash and uh, Granby. Um, we had a great time. We openly and respectfully discussed uh, quite a few issues, um, such as leadership development, um, the Mission of God's People by Christopher Wright, which is a book we've been going through with Jim. Uh, SWOT analysis of the church, a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threat analysis, as well as some conflict resolution, which Mike Hawkins led us through. He was in the first service, um, which we're very thankful for. Mike is a, is a, a great person for that purpose. Uh, we talked, ate, uh, then ate a lot more, and then we... Uh, prayed and sang, um, joyful noise, I guess is what you'd really call it, um, but we, uh, we had a good time while confirming the direction of our church body um, and our mutual love for each other and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to thank the, um, uh, Julie and Cindy and Jude and others that prepared the meals for us. We really appreciate that. We were able just to heat them up while we were talking, and, and, uh, and that was very, very good way to deal with that. Um, we also reviewed much of the conflicts that we have uh, gone through in the last uh, couple of years, and I feel confident after this event that we have uh, turned the page and put those issues behind us, and we're now looking forward to some exciting times that God has planned for our church. Um, the overall consensus from everyone that was there was that this was an event that um, needs to be yearly, at least. Um, and I would concur. Uh, I think it was certainly worthwhile. Thanks for our families allowing us to attend, especially those whose uh, wives we told we were going to go play golf on the way to Granby uh, in Denver. I don't know how you go get to Granby through Denver, but somehow that's what we did. Uh, <laughs> so we had a good time. Uh, Mike Graham from the first service reminded me of um, a saying that um, a rearview mirror is a real small little device, but a windshield is much, much larger. The reason for that is that we need to be looking forward, and we decided as a group of men this weekend that we drove a stake in the ground and said from this point in time, we're not looking back, we're moving forward, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate the fact that God has great plans for us in doing so. Thanks. I just got to say, you haven't lived till you've seen Kevin McDonald. Oh, no, no, I forgot what happens at Elder Retreat stays at Elder Retreat. 
or Ron Bristol, or a <laughs> it was a good time. All right, if you have your uh, Bibles, a PDA, a tablet, there's one in the old-fashioned kind in the, the seat in front of you, you might want to pull it out. We're going to be looking in Ephesians 5. We're in the middle of a, um, well, we're toward the end of a series called Waking the Dead. Today's a, a unique passage. It's a passage that has created no end of discussion in the church because it has the famous verse, Why submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord? So uh, this morning I was walking around before the church first service started and hugging wives and say, this is dedicated to you, submit, your, submit to your husband. And I got all kinds of responses from elbows in the ribs to uh, rolling of the eyes to smiling to, oh, what does that mean? And we're going we're gonna to take a look at this text today and try to figure it out. It actually, I think when we're done, you're going to find that it's a, it's a wonderful verse and it may, it may be revealing, I think it's revealing something very different than what we have uh, looked at when we look at the verse itself. We're in the middle, of, or toward the end of a series in Ephesians, we've entitled it Waking the Dead. What happens when the dead wake up? When a person is uh, dead and they come to know the Lord, regeneration occurs, the spirit becomes alive. And what happens when that person wakes up? So we've looked at all kinds of things. And um, in this Ephesians um, text today, just like all the other texts, it's going to be addressed to the church. So in Ephesians 4 through 6, this is all the commands about how we as a church are to live. And so I've been shaping it around DCC. What are we to look like? Dillon Community Church, what does it mean to be this new redeemed humanity? And you may remember the basic message of Ephesians is that God has created this brand new humanity, a redeemed humanity that wasn't found before, wasn't present. Between the Jews and the Gentiles, he broke down that hostility, that barrier, and brought them together. Um, and so... They became, this new humanity, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that you would be a blessing to all the nations. And you've heard me say, we are evidence that God has fulfilled that promise because I think almost everyone here, there may be a couple of exceptions, but are Gentiles. And so God has honored us. I was in Nepal a couple of weeks ago. You remember, in my class alone, there were 14 different ethnicities, not counting me, all Gentile. All evidence that God has done what he said he was going to do when he sent his son Christ, uh, his son Jesus. So that is the story of Ephesians. So therefore, we become a blessing to the nations. That's our responsibility as a church. God loved us so that we would love others. He redeemed us so that we would be redemptive in the lives of others. He blessed us so that we would bless others. He forgave us so that we would forgive others. And that's how he has chosen to reveal his glory. We serve in partnership with the Lord. So in, in Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21, we have that great benediction, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. We work together, and we're going to see that same uh, partnership present in this text today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5.15. We're going to work our way through this and go back and put it a little bit, do a little bit of work to put it in its original context so it makes sense. I want you to understand what the men and women of the first century world would have seen when, or felt when they read this text. It's startling. It would be startling to them. All right, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. All right, pause. Right off the bat, he, he starts this with the idea of wisdom. This represents wisdom, what he's getting ready to say. And he's going to contrast it with foolishness. To live as the wise. 
Verse 16, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do you capture the urgency behind this? This is a statement of urgency, making, taking every opportunity to live wisely because the days are evil. It matters. It is important how we live as a church. Your Christian character is significant. And it doesn't start tomorrow. It starts today. It's important. We'll come back to that. Verse 17, not, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. From time to time, people come to me. They would, are trying to seek the Lord's will. This is one of the two or three verses I will take them right here. Because it's very clear this is what the Lord's will is. To be wise, to not be foolish. And what does this foolishness look like? Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. That's the idea of it's a waste of time. That's what it means. And if any of you, and I know some of you have, have had too much wine, I've heard your stories, uh, my story, and uh, you've been around people that have had too much wine, you know that that period of time is lost. Right? It's just gone. And that's what he's saying here. Don't be foolish. Don't do that. But, but, rather, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what God's will is. Now, the English word with gives, makes, creates a little bit of confusion here because the English word with has a lot of variations on how it can be used. I'll give you an example. I have a bucket and I have a hose. So if I say fill the hose with water, I'm emphasizing content. What's in the bucket? You got it? If I say fill the hose, I mean fill the bucket, fill the bucket with water. If I say fill the bucket with a hose, I'm emphasizing the means by which we fill the bucket. But it's the same English word with. You understand the difference? One is emphasizing content, fill the bucket with water, and one is emphasizing the means by which you fill the bucket, fill the bucket with a hose. It's easy to think that we're talking about being filled with the Spirit, but that's actually not what it's communicating. It's communicating be filled by means of the Spirit or go in community church, let the Spirit fill you. The question is with what? He doesn't say answer that question right here. You have to go back. We didn't highlight it when we were in chapter 3 because we wanted to let you get to chapter 5. But if you go back to chapter 3... In the middle of verse um, 17, when he's talking about this mystery of Christ coming to the Gentiles, something brand new the earth hadn't seen, he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love, that surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond our capacity to reason. It goes beyond knowledge. And then what does he say? That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I don't think it's possible to overstate how wonderful this text is. In a, in a dark world, think of the Roman Empire. It's a dark world. It's a broken world. It's a world where there's gods on every street corner. None of those gods are real. None of them ever speak. We never anticipate that a God would want to fill us with himself, his own goodness. And yet that's what Paul tells us. So when the Holy Spirit came, this is part of this new era, this new covenant, which we celebrate. We go in a few minutes with communion. Dylan Community Church, let the Spirit fill you with the goodness of God. 
the good things of God. That is amazing. It's just an amazing statement of a very personal, warm, loving God that wants to give himself to us. We have lots of examples of that. Romans 5, the love of love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. He's filling us with the things that we were created to experience. Love, we were created for that. We're not created for hostility, are we? Joy, that's what we're made for. We're not made for uh, sadness. And you can go on down through the list of all the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And you, and you see that what God has in store for us is something fantastic. And this idea of letting the Spirit fill us with these things is addressed to the church. All the way through these texts here, these are plural pronouns, they're plural verbs, plural commands. It's addressed to the churches. The first church um, here in Asia Minor, but then 2,000 years later to us. This is addressed to us. So Dillon Community Church, let the Spirit fill you with these good things. What does it look like? When the Spirit has done that. Well, that's in the next few verses. If you look in, uh, starting in verse 19, a little bit of English grammar here. There's a series of five participles or gerunds. Any word that ends in I-N-G is a participle. Swimming, talking, walking, eating, that sort of thing. This is the description of what the church looks like when the Spirit has done that filling work. And let's look at these five participles. Verse, eight, uh, verse 19, speaking, that's the first one. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit or spiritual psalms, some of your texts may say. Remember in Ephesians 4.29, we saw that passage, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word that brings encouragement to the one who hears. Here's the positive side of that. Speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual psalms. It's speaking good things about the truth of the one true living God to each other. Don't forget. We have the privilege of knowing the one true living God. He has come and introduced himself to us. That's a great thing. And let's tell each other. Let's talk about it. You heard me say all summer, for those of you that are full-time residents here, don't be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be afraid to tell people that you, that you love Jesus, the risen Lord. Don't be afraid of that. We have the words of life, and this broken world needs to hear it. And let the Holy Spirit do his thing. In their hearts. So be bold. Tell people that you're a Christian. It's okay. If they want to laugh, let them laugh. There's nothing wrong with that. Love them anyway. So speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Singing. There's a second one. Singing and making melody. Two of them back together. Two and three. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. This is one of the reasons that we worship. That's why we use music. We were created for that. It doesn't matter how good or bad your voice is. I suspect that every one of you, sooner or later, finds yourself humming something in the shower, singing when you're walking. Nobody's looking in your car when you're driving and you're singing with the radio. You know what I'm talking about? We were created for that. That's a good thing. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Verse 20 is number four. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be a grateful people, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be thankful? Shouldn't we be thankful that somehow in our journey, the one true living God introduced himself to us and we found him? Right? Shouldn't we be grateful for that? Are we a grateful church? If not, we'll keep working on it. I think we are. 
always giving thanks for everything. God is good. God is good. And if you struggle with that, come talk to me afterwards. I've been through hard times. I lost a wife, my first wife, many years ago. I know what it's like. I've had problems with my children, as some of you parents have. I've had friends that have lost close ones, gone through terrible times. How is God good in the middle of that? Well, I'd love to have a private conversation over coffee with you about that. But he is good. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Then depending on, depending on which translation you use, verse 21 is either included in that or it's separated by an English subtitle and put with the next section, but it actually is the fifth participle in line, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the fifth, submitting to one another. So the very first participle is speaking to one another, and the fifth participle, submitting to one another. So you get the idea. This is about community. This is about this new redeemed humanity and what does it look like when the Spirit moves into our lives and fills us. These are the things that naturally begin to happen. We speak good words. We sing. We make melody in our hearts. We give thanks to the Lord. We begin submitting to one another. That's what we do. And the world has never seen that. Ever. They've never seen those things done well. That's what makes our mission so exciting and wonderful. If we simply live out these things, the world can't help but notice because we look different. Then you have the famous verse, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, a technical point about the verse before we dig into it. First of all, there's no verb in this verse. And if you use an older translation, many of the older ones will have actually in italics. The word submit will be in italics, which means it's not there in the Greek language. So literally, it's just wives to your own husbands. This is called an ellipsis in Greek where you leave a verb out. We actually do it in English to get attention, to uh, make a statement sometimes. We'll, we don't have to use verbs in our own language. We can make a statement without it. And everybody goes, oh, well, that's what happens here. When they leave a verb out, they're doing it on purpose. So if you just started at this verse, wives to your husbands, ask to the Lord, you'd all be scratching your heads going, huh, what does that mean? That forces you to go back to the verse before, which is the reason why they use this linguistic feature, leaving out the verb. Wives to your own husbands, ask to the Lord. What's he talking about? And you go back and you say, speaking, I mean, uh, submitting to one another. Submitting to one another. What does that mean? This is a startling statement in the first century, submitting to one another. Now pause just for a second before we talk about wives a little bit more. This is part of a larger section. You notice in chapter 6, verse 1, children obey your parents. Chapter 6, verse 5, slaves obey your masters. Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's following what was known as what we call today the household codes of the first century. Started with Aristotle. Aristotle sat down and wrote out these codes of what family life should look like and how it should be structured. And so he had this triad. Wives to your husbands, children to your parents, slaves to your masters. Paul, Paul, Paul follows that triad right here, but he does some very creative and startling things with it. The triad followed a very similar pattern. Wives, obey your husbands because they have authority over you. That was the language. Children, obey your parents because they have authority over you. 
Slaves, obey your masters because they have authority over you. That was the language. Okay. Take, I'm going to take you back to Genesis just for a moment to set the context for this verse in Genesis chapter 1. So if you want to go back to Genesis 1 with me, or you can listen, I'm going to read it. The very beginning of the human race, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humans in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky. You notice, so that they may rule over, becomes important in a minute. They rule over the birds, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, all the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the they that are going to rule, male and female. God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. They have a task to do, and they work in partnership to rule over this creation. Move to the end of chapter 2, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. It's a very important term, this word helper. Um, the idea behind it is that a, one person completes what is lacking in another. The female completes what is lacking in the male. It's not a, a word that talks about hierarchy because God has called our helper many times in the Old Testament and he never submits to Israel. It's not a word on hierarchy. It's a word on completing what is lacking in another person. So God created males and females to work together in partnership and that's how his image is reflected. But he goes on, so the Lord God caused, uh, the, Lord, uh, God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, whoa! That's actually what's in there. It's a strong exclamation, but it's hard to capture that in English, so we, we have a little bit sanitized. Well, this is now bone of my bones. Plus, no, no. Adam woke up from his sleep and saw this woman standing there the first time. Whoa! That's what every husband should do in every good marriage. And if you don't do that, come talk to me. <laughs> Verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The original story was created, creating a partnership between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and their task was to, was to exercise dominion, to rule over the earth. What a tragedy that the very next chapter describes the total, complete destruction, disaster from the fall. Before you can even blink, women are now property to be owned by men. Before you can even blink, men are stronger. That's the background to the Old Testament. So then you begin this long, winding journey where God begins to, through the giving of the Old Testament, he begins the process of rebuilding this creation. Healing woundedness, overturning bad values, cultural values. He's not, very, not in a hurry. He does it very slowly. 
But when you look at the Old Testament and you begin to read it in light of the cultural background, you see God systematically and slowly beginning the process of bringing healing to this broken, this broken world. When we get to Ephesians 5, this is where he restores this relationship. So think about the language. Wives, obey your husbands, part of the household codes, because they have authority over you. Paul never uses those terms. Submit yourselves to one another. This is a restoration of what God had intended at the beginning. This is the first time in, in the history of the world, I believe, that anybody said this. This is brand new. If the focus was on submission, then why is it never talked about in the Bible before this? It's not brought up in the law. Jesus didn't bring it up. You understand? This is that point in history where this relationship gets returned to this right here. Submit yourselves to one another. Then Paul does something very interesting in the middle of this because he does, he does quote the triad, okay? Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. He starts on the bottom of the triad, each triad, and works to the top. Wives, submit to your husbands, children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters. But then he does something unheard of. Once again, he's interested in bringing reconciliation to all these, these uh, very dysfunctional and broken relationships. He reverses them and starts talking about what the responsibility of the father, the parents, and the masters are. What are you talking about? I own my wife, I own my children, I own my slaves. No, you don't. No, you don't. This is a restoration. This is part of God's redemptive plan. This is part of that new humanity that we have to live out, is that we have the responsibility to reverse these roles and put them back in a context that honors the Lord. So let's look at these in Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. A short word about that. Headship does not imply, I don't believe, there are those who disagree with me, but I do not believe it implies authority. I think it's used the way we typically use it in our culture. I think John Kerry is the Secretary of State. Um, I always have to remind myself who that is every time I teach this because every so many years it changes. John Kerry is the Secretary of State. He is the what? Head of state. See how it's used? He has no authority over me at all, does he? Or you. But he does have the power to represent me to others as head of state. He can sign contracts. He can negotiate with other countries. He can do all kinds of stuff on my behalf, but he has no authority over me. And I think that is the core meaning behind husband is the head of the wife. I don't think it means authority. If it means authority, then we have an issue when we look in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says, and God is the head of Christ. Because we believe, and all of, most of our doctrinal statements somewhere say this, all the church creeds reaffirm this, that there is no subordinationism within the Trinity. The Trinity is equal in power and glory. They're equal in every respect. And so if God is the head of Christ, what does that mean? Well, it's as similar to the husband's the head of the wife. I am in a unique position in a broken world to honor my wife, to represent her well, and to help her. Just like I am with other women in the church. I think it's simply what it means. But then he goes on and he says, but let's don't stop there. Let's take a look at the husbands. What is your responsibility? Love your wives, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's something new. He turns this relationship on its head. 
What is one thing that Christ did in his own best personal interest? You won't find it. He was 100% sacrificial for the church. So who has the harder role here? Wives who willingly let a husband sacrifice 100% for them or the husband who is passed through that? Not 99%, not 98%, 100%. Christ is the model, complete sacrifice. In other words, your wife is more important than you are, husbands. Well, but, but she's property. What are you talking about? Can you see it in the first century world? Paul turned it on its head. He does the same thing with uh, uh, just a brief word with children, parents. Children, obey your parents. Your parents do have authority over you, by the way. Wives, your husbands don't have authority over you. That word is eliminated in this context. But children, your parents do. So obey them. But then he turns around. Parents, do not exasperate your children in anger. What? I own those kids. No, you don't. No, no, you've been entrusted with them as a steward. As a steward. Don't exasperate them to anger. Rather, teach them about this one true living God. Love them. Love them. Help them to understand who this wonderful God is and what he's all about. Slaves, obey your masters. They actually do own you in the first century world. That hadn't been corrected yet. But then what does he say about the masters? 9, verse 9, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no favoritism with God. Treat them well. You see how he turned each of these triads, these relationships on its head? Surprise the world. This is a return. This is the beginning of the return to what God had intended in relationships all along. We treat each other with dignity and respect. And by the way, that is unique to Christianity. We treat each other with dignity and respect. We partner together. This is what we do. Then he concludes a section on husbands and wives with verse uh, 20, uh, 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, and he quotes Genesis 2, chapter 2. So he reverses Genesis 1, and he concludes with Genesis 2. What? This reason, for this reason, a man will leave his... What reason? For what reason? Look in the text. Verse, 9, verse 29, at the end. Christ... Uh, after all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, marriage is instituted. What that means, I think, is way back in Genesis, when God instituted marriage, he, he did it knowing full well that this would become our first voice in the gospel. For this reason, because we are members of this one body, marriage is instituted. Look what he says after this. This is a profound mystery, you think? <laughs> but I am talking about Christ and the church. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Christ and the church work in partnership together. That's what we do. The great benediction of Galatians, I mean Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. To God be the glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus. That's how he reveals his mystery. That's how he reveals his glory to this, to this broken world, is through the church and through Christ. We have a relationship, and the marriage is a symbol of that. Treat your marriage well. If your marriage is struggling, if your marriage is in trouble, don't be ashamed of that. I've been there. Come ask us for help. We're a church of redemption. We're a church of reconciliation. We want to help. It's okay. Don't need to be ashamed. Marriages get in trouble. Your marriage is your first voice in the gospel. For those of you that have been divorced, first of all, I'm sorry that that happened, but don't become complacent. Divorce, even if it's right, the right thing to do, and there are cases where I believe it's the right thing to do, still reveals failure. My advice is, don't become complacent. Whatever marriage you're on now, do it right. Do it well. Because that becomes your first voice in the gospel. How on earth can the world understand this one true living God, the Trinity, if they can't see us relating well at the deepest levels of our faith? And that's what this text is about. Submitting to one another is addressed to the church, isn't it? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he digs right down into the family. Starts with husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves, masters. All relationships in the family. Why? Because this is the one place where you can't fool, can't fool anybody. I can fool you all day long standing up here. If you want to know what I'm like and you have my permission, ask my wife or kids. Take any amounts of coffee. They'll be glad to tell you. Okay? What is Jim like? They'll tell you about my brokenness, and they'll tell you about my commitment to the Lord. They'll tell you about my faithfulness, my desire to learn, to love well, to serve well. I'm no different than you are. I'm broken too. They'll, they'll speak the truth because it's real in our family. If it's not real in your family, come talk to us. We want it to become real. Because if it's real in each of your families, our church, we can't stop it. The gospel just spreads. Because the world will see what we have that they don't have. Genuine love, care, appreciation, faithfulness, sacrifice, service, putting others first, dignity, all those things, won't they? That's the heart of this passage. This is the passage that begins to correct what happened at the fall in relationships. All right. Usher's going to come forward and take the offering. Let me just say a quick word to you, as I say every Sunday. Uh, I love you. I'm grateful for whatever God puts on your hearts to give. It's a partnership. He puts it on your hearts. You give it, and we spend it for his glory. You approve the budget and the plan, and we do it well. Our commitment is to always spend it well. So let me just say thank you for whatever God puts on your hearts. We're delighted in that. So let me pray. Father, thank you for these gifts, Lord, that these people have brought, and that we as a church are about to receive. Our commitment to you and to them is to use them wisely. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for helping us to be a blessing to others. In your son's name we pray. Amen.